It's amazing in, in the fast pace of life, and perhaps we've never lived at a, a point in time where it is easier to be busy doing nothing. <laughs> perhaps I can phrase it like this, maybe we, we've never lived in a time where it's easy to be busy doing the wrong things. To have our eyes fixed upon the wrong things, to allow the things in this world to grab the affections of our heart and to pull us away from where God would have us fix our gaze, where God would have us look. And this morning in the Gospel of John, God is giving us the privilege and the joy of turning our heads back to where our gaze ought to always be fixed and one day will eternally be fixed, which is on the person and work of Jesus Christ. This morning, by the power of the Holy Spirit, John wants us to stand at the foot of the cross. And he wants us to look at Jesus Christ. And he wants our hearts to be gripped by what we see there. The first thing I wanna point out as we walk through this text in John 19 is this, we need to look at his cross. Specifically, we need to look at the event of the cross, and we do this in a very specific way every Good Friday, yet the Bible would call us to regularly be looking and gazing and lingering at the foot of the cross, to be standing there, keeping our eyes upon what Jesus has accomplished for us. Just the first couple of verses remind us after, by the way, Jesus had been flogged, he had gone through these mock trials before Pilate and before the Jewish uh, elite. Pilate has washed his hands, both literally and metaphorically, of Jesus Christ. He knows this man is innocent, he knows that there is no guilt to be found in him, and yet he will do nothing to stop the anger and the rage of the Jews that simply want him dead. Jesus has been lashed, flogged 40 times. The skin has been torn off of his back. He has been mocked and humiliated, beaten, scorned, spat upon, humiliated, ridiculed, robed in a purple robe, hailed as a false king, smacked in the face with a mock scepter, and he stands now broken and bloodied. And tells us in verse 16, so. He delivered Pilate him over to, be, to them to be crucified. And so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. It was customary for condemned criminals to bear or to carry their own cross. And contrary maybe to what you've seen depicted in movies or on, on posters and pictures, they, they wouldn't carry the entire cross. The, the vertical beam would be at the place of the hill, the place where they were going to be killed, and they would pick up this horizontal beam that you see depicted here on this cross, and they would have to bear the weight of this, think about this, on a back that had just been ripped to shreds. They're bleeding out, they're exhausted and humiliated, literally just grasping on for every breath as they drag this piece of wood outside of the city. Why, why, why would they make them carry this crossbeam across their backs? Why would they do this to these condemned criminals? Well first, the Romans knew how to get the most 
for their money. They weren't gonna do the work if they can get somebody else to do it for them, but really, more importantly, they wanted to make a point to those underneath their rule. They forced these criminals to carry this piece of wood through the streets, torn apart, humiliated, stripped down, naked, and they would take a scenic route through the town, through the villages, through the streets, outside to the main highway, if you will. And this was their method of spreading terror and keeping people in line. You can just hear them saying, this is what happens to those who oppose Rome. This is what happens to all those who would try to rise up against this mighty power. You end up like this, a bloody, humiliated mess, marching himself to his death, carrying the own instrument of his death on his back. There is a possible illusion here to Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham took his son Isaac. You remember the story? God told him to bring him up to the top of Mount Moriah and to offer him as a sacrifice. And you remember how how Abraham had his son Isaac pick up the wood that would be used for his own death as he was laid upon the altar. There is immense pain and exhaustion as we we saw last week as we dug into this humiliating event of flogging. Many people died during this scourging before they ever made it to the cross. It was exhausting. The blood loss would have prevented Jesus from making it too far. And we know from the other gospel accounts that in fact Jesus probably made it to the outer gates where he literally fell over in exhaustion, unable any longer to bear the weight and the pain. Son of God falls over and they enlist a man, a watcher, somebody who is walking by, Simon of Cyrene, he had his children with him and he's watching this and you can just see there's crowds of people, right? This is how humiliated it is. They all see what's going on. Most of them are heaping scorn and mocking, belittling and berating these criminals as they go by, including Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden this man gets hauled out and enlisted to carry a cross that's not his own because Jesus could no longer bear the weight. They force him to carry the cross to this place of a skull, Golgotha. They made their way outside the city and it is there that they crucified him and I think it's helpful for us maybe to consider what was taking place. I mentioned last week that the flogging, that the 40 lashes that criminals would undergo, that it was so horrific, it was so painful that it was illegal for a Roman citizen to undergo such punishment, so too with crucifixion. No Roman citizen could legally be crucified. It was that horrendous. Some of the quotes I've, I've read this week are just, they're, they're unbelievable. The way they depict crucifixion, it is arguably the most horrendous and painful way to die. And this was a, an art that had been perfected over years and years and years. And in fact, just as we think about what, what was taking place physically to Jesus Christ, because I think it's important for our hearts and minds to really weigh and consider all that's taking place, it's helpful to know even just how some of our language has been shaped by the cross. Have you ever used the term excruciating? I'm in excruciating pain, or so, you know, you stub your toe and you think you're in excruciating pain. The word excruciating comes from the Latin word excruciatus, which literally means from the cross. It was a word that was created because of the horror of the crucifixion. I wanna read an extended 
description of the physical effects of crucifixion, so I'm gonna ask you just to bear with me. And this is, it's hard to read and it's hard to consider, but I, I wanna read this portion. This is from a medical doctor who has helped us understand a bit of what was taking place physiologically. See, Jesus first would have been nailed with iron spikes about seven to nine inches long between his wrist most likely here and between his feet. And he would have been propped up on the cross. And while he hung there, the positioning of his feet is probably the most critical part of the mechanics of crucifixion. And listen to what this description says. First, the knees were flexed at about 45 degrees. And the feet were flexed, bent downward, an additional 45 degrees until they were parallel with the vertical pole. As I said, an iron nail seven to nine inches long was driven through the feet between the second and third metatarsal bones. In this position, the nail would sever the dorsal pedal artery of the foot. But the resultant bleeding would be insufficient to cause death. And the resulting position on the cross sets up a horrific sequence of events which result in a slow, painful, agonizing death. Having been pinned to the cross, the victim now has an impossible position to maintain. With the knees flexed at about 45 degrees, the victim must bear his own weight with the muscles of the thigh. However, this is an almost impossible task. Try to stand with your knees flexed at 45 degrees for five minutes. As the strength of the legs gives out, the weight of the body must now be borne by the arms and the shoulders. The result is that within a few minutes of being placed on the cross, the shoulders will become dislocated. Minutes later, the elbows and wrists become dislocated. The result of these dislocations is that the arms are as much as six to nine inches longer than normal. With the arms dislocated, considerable body weight is transferred to the chest, causing the rib cage to be elevated in a state of perpetual inhalation. Consequently, in order to exhale, the victim must push down on his feet to allow the rib muscles to relax. The problem is that the victim cannot push very long because the legs are extremely fatigued. As time goes on, the victim is less and less able to bear the weight of the legs, causing further dislocation of the arms and further raising of the chest wall, making breathing more and more difficult. The result of this process is a series of catastrophic physiological effects because the victim cannot maintain adequate ventilation of the lungs. The blood oxygen levels begins to diminish and the blood carbon dioxide level begins to rise. This rising CO2 level stimulates the heart to be faster and faster in order to increase the delivery of oxygen and the removal of CO2. However, due to the pinning of the victim and the limitations of oxygen delivery, the victim cannot deliver more oxygen and the rising heart rate only increases oxygen demand. So this process sets up a vicious cycle of increasing oxygen demand which cannot be met followed by an ever-increasing heart rate, and after several hours, the heart begins to fail, the lungs begin to collapse and fill up with fluid, which further decreases oxygen delivery to the tissues. The blood loss and hyperventilation combines to cause severe dehydration. Over a period of several hours, the combination of collapsing lungs, failing heart, dehydration, and the inability to get adequate oxygen supplies to the tissues cause the eventual death of the victim. But fortunately, the Romans devised a way to prolong the suffering. They put a little seat kind of midway down on the cross which allowed the rear side of the victim to continue, even though they didn't have much strength, to push themselves up just a little bit to get one more breath of air, causing, causing this torture sometimes to last days on end. And when they had had enough, they would eventually come and break the legs of the victim so that they no longer could push up and would die within minutes. 
The victim, in effect, cannot breathe properly and slowly suffocates to death. And in cases of severe cardiac stress, such as crucifixion, a victim's heart can even burst. Might I just add that the physical suffering on the cross, though it is gruesome and it is extreme, it is nothing compared to the spiritual suffering that Jesus handled on the cross that day. As the wrath of God was poured out upon him, he not only suffered in physical torment and pain, and he felt it just like you and I would feel it. He would feel every bit of pain and agony. It was horrendous. He was also bearing upon him for three hours the full weight and measure of the wrath of God as it was being unleashed upon him, torrent after torrent after torrent. Why, why must we look at the cross? I mean, why, why must we keep our eyes fixed upon this? Why must we know these details? Well, I think a lot of reasons. The first and most important, doesn't it doesn't help us see the great love of God for you and me. It's interesting, as we look at scripture, the reason Jesus wants us to know something of crucifixion, which by the way was commonplace during this time period, people would have been exposed to this, they would have seen it, they would have known the horrors of it, even though they might not have fully understood all of the physiology involved, they would have known how horrendous it actually was. Jesus picks up on this picture of crucifixion in the gospels, and he uses it as a paradigm for the Christian life. In fact, listen to what Jesus says in Luke 29, or excuse me, 9, verse 23 through 25. It's up on the screen behind me. Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? You see, to be a Christian means that you have died to yourself. The pattern of the Christian life is a radical death to oneself and a radical identification with Christ's death and his crucifixion. So we are called to pick up our cross and die if we are going to be followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul in Galatians twice uses this language. He says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, and here it is. Is this not the heart of the crucifixion right here? Who loved me and gave himself for me. In Galatians 5.24, Paul says, and those who belong to Christ, Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. See, by the power of the Spirit, we turn our back on ourselves, and in repentance, we renounce our right to control our own fate and do whatever we want. We give up our pursuit of self. We literally die to self. We literally crucify ourselves. And this is what it means to pick up our cross. And by the way, I hope you notice with Jesus' words that it's not a one-time event. Yes, every person must pick up their cross in the first sense of denying themselves and following Jesus Christ. There must be an initial point, like Liz demonstrated for us today, where you come to the end of yourself and you say, I've been living for myself, I've been living to put myself on display, I've been fighting for my own will, my own desires, I've been following after them, but now is the day where I will die to myself and I will declare that I am no longer my own, I have been bought with a price. What an awesome day that is. You remember that day in your life? 
But there is the implication in Jesus to command to now pick up a cross every day and follow Jesus Christ. You see, every day is a day we are to understand the death of Jesus Christ. There is never a day that goes by where you and I are not to have our eyes fixed upon the cross. And don't we know this to be true, that every day is a day where we literally wrestle against our flesh? Is that true in your life? And and every day there must be, uh, listen, listen, look here. There must be moments in every day. There must be a moment, I would argue this, at the beginning of every day where you wake up and say, God, today I'm dying to myself. And today I'm living for you. But listen, if you're like me, what you know is this. It's hard work even throughout, even if you've prayed that prayer, aren't there times in your life where you're like, man, like all of a sudden I'm back at it, right? I'm living for myself again. And so listen, I would argue, Christian, there needs to be a moment by moment sometimes, and sometimes it's very hard. And I can just, I can tell you this from personal experience. Sometimes I have wrestled against the flesh and moment by moment I'm praying, God, I gotta, I'm giving myself over to you. I'm giving myself again, Lord. I'm, I gotta give myself over to you. And God, listen, God is faithful where there is repentance and where there is trust in him, God is faithful. See, the cross makes demands of us. That's why it's important for us to understand the cross. The cross will not allow us to love the world and love Christ. It won't. It will not permit a half-hearted devotion. Sin and selfishness must be put to death. What might this look like for you and for me? Maybe there's some very obvious sin in your life that you know of right now. Maybe there's some sin you've been living in, you've been you know, allowing to kind of be percolating within you that you've been thinking about, that you've been actively pursuing. Maybe there's some willful sin. Maybe right now the Spirit of God is revealing to you just areas of your life you know. You know that you are not giving over to Him. God calls you right now, right now in this moment, repentance, God forgive me for my sin and obedience, turn your back to that sin and walk and follow him, pick up the hammer and nail, take your cherished sin and nail it to the cross. Maybe Christ right now is calling some of you to give up something, to sacrifice, maybe some comfort, some pleasure, some priority or some pursuit that's taking over your life to more faithfully follow him. See, when we look at the cross, we see that there is nothing, listen, catch this, Christian, when we look at the cross, we see there is nothing that he would not give for us, amen? May there be nothing we won't give to him. Next, we need to look at his coronation. We need to look how he is being crowned king in this passage. In verse 19, it says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and he put it on the cross. He read Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. It was customary for a placard to be tacked up to a condemned man's cross, stating the reason for his execution. The inscription is written here in three languages. Notice this, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. It's fascinating that it was written in three languages, Aramaic, the language of the Jews, Greek, the common language of the people, and Latin, the language of Rome. There's something particularly ironic about this, and John, if you read through his gospel, he just, it just drips irony all over the place. You see, well, they wanted the charges to be evident to all. That's why they put them on all these languages. They want everybody to know this is the reason why this person is condemned. Beware, beware, beware. And while that is their objective, God uses this for his purposes. 
He uses this to remind us that this message is truly for all people, doesn't he? Not only that, but it would be hung over Jesus outside the city where multitudes of people would be passing by and reading the sign. What's the message? What's the message of the sign? And I love this because Pilate, as we'll see, he's trying to kind of take a jab at the Jews. So he puts up there, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Multitudes of people are walking by, seeing this man hanging, reading this sign. Pilate was so aggravated by the Jews. They had manipulated him, they had put their finger on him as we saw last week, they had moved him around like a little puppet to get their way and he had capitulated, he gave in to them again as we've seen. This is the fourth time that Pilate has capitulated to the Jewish people, at least that we know of. They pressed on him, they threatened his security, they threatened his position, they threatened his power, they really threatened his very life and he gives in to their demands. So here, this is his final way of kind of of getting back just a little bit at them, poking at the religious leaders just a little bit. Sticks it to them and it works. The Jews are infuriated by this declaration, by this charge, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And it says in verse 21, so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, you see the difference? I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. The Jews are frustrated by Pilate here. Pilate though, for once, is not going to capitulate. What is written is written, and don't you love that? You ever come across people who stand up for what doesn't really matter? I'm sure you know people like that, I know people like that. Maybe you've done that, maybe you do that in your own home all the time, right? I remember the first year I was married, Right, where, where just so many important decisions have to be made, where I took a stand in my house and declared, this is where the kitchen soap is supposed to go. <sighs> I'm not, hmm. This is where it's always been in my house, this is where we put it, and this is the way it should be, right? People can be dogmatic about so many things in this life. We can be dogmatic in our own home, making a stand and declaring this is the way it ought to be, all the while sacrificing what really matters, can't we? Like cultivating a loving relationship with your wife, honoring, preferring your spouse above yourself, right? But in the moment you make a decision, I will capitulate to the thing that matters more, just like Pilate, right? I could, I could bow down and I could release Jesus Christ. I could declare him as King of kings and Lord of lords. I could make this decision, but I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'll take a stand in an area that doesn't really matter. I'll make it over a sign. How many of us are dogmatic, sometimes even over theological nuances in our faith, and yet we we give up on pursuing or we're lazy in pursuing what really matters, a deeper, more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. We're sloppy when it comes to the things of the Lord sometimes and dogmatic about preferences and opinions and, and things that ultimately are going to fade away. 
And what's so fascinating about this, though, though Pilate meant it for evil, right, to take a jab at the Jews, what was God doing in the background of all this? God meant it for good, didn't he? He's holding up this sign for all the world to see. Though Pilate doesn't know, he's doing it unwittingly, and he's doing it really, really sarcastically. God is making a declaration to the world in all languages. <laughs> at least present. And the message, this declaration really is, isn't it shorthand for the gospel? Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. This is ultimately the message that saves or condemns and we know that there are two people who are beside Jesus, right? Jesus was crucified in the middle of two condemned thieves and on one side there was a thief scoffing and mocking and ridiculing. They thought you were the son of God. Why don't you get down from this cross and take me down with you? Come on, who do you say you are? Who do you think you are? And then there's the other man on the other side who says, forgive me. And Jesus looks at him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. The message saves or condemns. Jesus Christ is king. He is king over all. And I love the fact that Pilate says what he does here. What I have written, I have written. In other words, it is set in stone. It will not be changed. And there's more truth to that statement than Pilate even knows, isn't there? Jesus Christ is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That is etched in stone. And listen, it will be the refrain of heaven for all eternity. King of kings, king of kings, Lord of lords. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is just an amazing display of the power of God. You know, it doesn't matter what anybody says. It doesn't matter what people want to think. It doesn't matter about their opinion. People can say what they want about Jesus Christ. Oh, he says he's a king. He says that he's a savior. You say that he's a savior. It doesn't matter what they say. What matters is what is. And it's been written. And that will never change. In verse 23 and 24, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts one part for each soldier, and also his tunic. This was customary. There was four soldiers who would lead the prisoners and crucify the prisoners. They would divide the clothes and not wanting anything to go to waste, but there's this tunic. This tunic is a seamless, notice there, the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. It was an incredibly expensive garment and it was worth uh, gambling for, so they didn't have to cut it up and split it up. They would gamble for it and that's exactly what they did. They said, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was, notice again, who's in control of this entire situation. This was to fulfill what the scriptures said. They divided my garments among them and my clothing. They cast lots. This passage is full of indignities, but it is the way that Jesus is being ceremoniously crowned as king. First, you need to know this, that he was stripped naked, right? You see them gambling for his clothes? He is stripped down naked as he carries his cross and as he hangs, he hangs humiliated and shamed. In the ancient world, this is one of the greatest ways to humiliate somebody. Oftentimes, after a military victory, they'd parade the defeated enemies through the streets, buck naked, reducing them to shame and humiliation. possible that there is some theological significance here as well. 
I have to think that there's not a coincidence in the mind of John here. Do you remember what happened in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter three? After Adam and Eve sinned, what, what is the first thing they realized about themselves? They're naked. And they quickly, they quickly tried to cover themselves. They made clothing for themselves. And, and then it tells us they went and they hid from God. See, the, the picture here that we're supposed to understand is that in an instant, you know what sin did? Sin opened eyes to shame and guilt, humiliation. And I just, I just wonder, as you look at, at Jesus Christ, as you look at his coronation, can you see the humiliation he took on here? Can you see that in his nakedness, it is a reflection back to the nakedness that we all suffer because of sin? And Jesus Christ in himself is taking upon himself our shame, our guilt, our condemnation. They divided his clothes and they gambled for his seamless tunic. Another fulfillment of prophecy from Psalm 22, verse 18, and, and just here's what you need to know from that. Why does John keep pointing these fulfillments of prophecy out? Because John is zealous. He's zealous to help his readers understand what's happening on the cross. It's not an accident, right? This is not, we're not all of a sudden supposed to feel sorry for Jesus. Jesus is willingly following the plan of God. God is fully in charge here. Not for a moment is this out of the control and hands of Jesus Christ. This is all going according to plan. Every last detail, right down to the minutia, the gambling of his clothes prophesied years, hundreds of years earlier. Look at his coronation. See the shame and guilt that he bore for you and for me. Look at his compassion here. That's what we see next, look at his compassion. There's this really sweet moment after the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from the hour, that hour, the, disciples, the disciple took her to his own home. This is just a fascinating picture. You know, sometimes we, we think of the cross being up there and people being really far removed, but the reality is, is, is Jesus' own mother was probably standing literally this far away. She probably could have reached over and touched the feet of her son. She, Mother's Day. Mothers, can you imagine staring in horror as the child that you, that you held in your arms, the child that you raised, the child that you nurtured, hangs seemingly helpless in utter agony. Yet John here wants us not to focus on the pain and horror in this moment. He wants us to focus on, listen, in spite of all of this, in spite of the pain, in spite of the, you know, in, in our pain and torment, how do we often act, right? I stub my toe and I'm, it's like I'm the only person in the world. Who cares about the nail in your foot? I stubbed my big toe over here. Have mercy on me, right? We can't think of anybody else in our pain but other people. And yet Jesus, bearing the weight of the sins of the world, is looking out for the needs of his children.
He's barely surviving yet he's thinking of others. Don't you love that about Jesus? <laughs> there are three or potentially four women. There's some confusion based on the, the language and the grammar. I think it's four women that are here. There's Mary, Jesus' mother, his mother's sister, which I think is a separate person, unless there are moms out there who name both of their daughters Mary, which would be weird, right? Mary, the wife of Clopas, we don't know much about her. We know something of Mary Magdalene. Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. Here are these women who have encountered Jesus at different stages in different lives, isn't it interesting that, that right now it's the women? Like, where are the, and they may be like, where are the men? <laughs> what happened? Men don't have a monopoly on courage, do they? And here these women risk a lot to be standing at the feet of Jesus, I, I'm sure weeping and looking at him in horror. Now they watch in agony as he endures this unspeakable pain. As he's dying, he selflessly, I love this, he selflessly cares for those who stand at his feet. I just I want to point out maybe five observations that we can glean from his compassion in this particular situation. First, at the foot of the cross, here's what we find, our hope. We find our hope that all of this is not in vain, the, the horror, the pain, the torment, it's not in vain. In fact, Jesus is looking through all of that horror and pain and what he knows he's be able to offer through it is the greatest source of compassion and the greatest source of hope for humanity. And I think it's fascinating that you have all these different women and I think each woman would have a different story to tell about how they met Jesus and what kind of life they were living. You have Mary who, who lived seemingly a pretty blessed life and she was blessed of God to bear the Son of God. You have Mary Magdalene who was probably deep in sin and she was filled with demonic influence. Who knows what kind of life she was living? Who knows how far away? Who knows the depth of her sin? And then you have this other Mary, all Marys, interestingly enough, too, who, who knows her story. Like she, there's, there's this kind of, she's anonymous in one sense. We don't really have an understanding of who she is. I, I think as we look at the cross, one of the things that's helpful to understand is this, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. All are welcome at the foot of the cross. There's nobody who's better than anybody else at the foot of the cross. There's nobody who's worse. Everybody is found in the exact same position. I mean, nobody, think about this, nobody stands at the foot of Mount Everest and argues with the person beside them about who's taller, okay? They stand in awe of the magnitude of what's in front of them. And when we come to the foot of the cross, when we gaze upon the brilliance and beauty of Jesus Christ, everything that we, we love to do in our lives and our humanity, we love to compare. Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Maybe some of you walked in here saying like, there's no way God can accept me. I'm not as good as these people. They don't, my life has been so sinful. I've been such a mess. And you know, you're, you're horizontally comparing yourself. But when you stand at the foot of the cross, listen, none of those things matter at all. The ground is level. Everyone must come to Jesus. Everyone falls into the same category as those who need to be redeemed. Even the mother of Jesus. She stands at the foot of the cross. The mother of Jesus, and contrary to Catholic teaching, who believes that Mary is a co-redeemer, that Mary is without sin, here she is in the same need of hope and redemption as every other human being who has walked the face of the earth. 
And he speaks from the cross to all who will look up to him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. At the foot of the cross, secondly, notice this, we find our comfort. And I I love this scene again because just remember that this is the mother of Jesus. She had held this little boy. She had watched him grow up in perfection, mind you. She loved her son dearly. And, and, And here her heart is literally being pierced through with pain and agony as she watches on and she is unable to do anything. She sees the horror of all of this and And Jesus is the one comforting her. And I just, I find that so, so helpful for my own soul and I think sometimes, you know, in our pride, aren't we like, in our pride, we, we don't wanna burden other people with our problems. How many times have you said that? How many times have you heard somebody, I, I, I'm going through something, I need help, but I, I don't wanna burden you. I hear that all the time. Would you just, if that's you saying, would you stop that? That's pride. I don't want to burden people with my problems. I don't want to burden it. And sometimes I think, I think in our hearts, we, though we don't say it, we often in our pride don't feel we should burden Jesus with our problems. Oh, he doesn't care about this. This is not a big deal. This is not. We see here the deepest compassion imaginable through the greatest pain imaginable. And just, you just need to know that whatever you're going through, even in the darkest hour of your life, whatever you're encountering right now, whatever you might go through in your life, there's never a time when Jesus is too busy for you. He says, come, come into my presence. Right? I, I welcome you and I wanna come for you. I wanna care for you. Bring all of your burdens and cast them at the foot of the cross. The third thing we see here is at the foot of the cross we find our community. See, it's, it's so interesting how Jesus is caring for her in such a practical way. And I think that it's helpful to understand that in Christ you gain a new family, you gain a new community, and in his concern for his mother, he places her into the care, not of her, natu- not of, uh, her natural sons, which is really fascinating. Uh, at this point, uh, John tells us in John chapter seven that the brothers of Jesus, Mary's other sons, don't actually believe in Jesus. Not yet. It's likely at this point too, scholars believe that, you know, that we've heard no talk of Joseph and it's probably likely that Joseph is dead. Here's, here's Mary, she's widowed, she's losing the one son whom she has leaned upon for everything, who she has looked to. And the reality is, especially in an ancient culture, but it's really not that much different today, she will be alone and Jesus then takes her and commits her into the care of one of his disciples because it's there that she would find a believing and supportive relationship. You know, there are some people when they come to Christ, they give up much to follow him. Some of you in this room, I've heard stories from some of you that when you decided to follow Christ, you lost friendships, you lost family, some of you, you've lost marriages, some of you, your spouse doesn't even wanna talk to you because you follow Jesus Christ and what God promises is that what you lose for the sake of following him, you will gain a hundredfold in Christ. He will supply for you through the body of Christ. He adopts you. That's why, you know, this morning, if you've had a bad relationship with your mother or father, what a beautiful truth to know that you have been adopted by a loving father into a family where you will be known and loved. In Christ, you're never alone. 
Church, what a great reminder that God wants to use us to care for the needs of those in their church. You know, the scriptures talk much about the orphans and the widows, don't they? How much we need to be aware, we need to look around, we need to see the people in need, and we need to be reaching out. And I'm, I'm encouraged in our church as I see people who have such passionate hearts to reach out to the lost and the needy, even in our own church family. What a mark of what we see Jesus doing here. The fourth thing we see this is our identity. Our identity is found at the foot of the cross. But did you notice who, who, is, who Mary is being committed into the care of here? Notice that there's no name attached, right? When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, who's that? Do you remember, you remember just flip back in John 13 for a moment. I just, I love this so much. John 13, verse 23. As they're sitting around this table, it says one of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table close to Jesus. Do you remember who that is? This is John. He said, well that's, that, that's, that's really, really strange that he would comment and define himself as the one Jesus loved. And yet I would say just the opposite. Can you see what defines him? Can you see what defines his identity? Can you see what captures his heart? Can you see what thrills his heart more than anything in the world? Do you notice when, when, when John would be asked, John, tell me about yourself. Define yourself by something. He wouldn't say even this. I am one who loves Jesus. He would say I am one who is loved by Jesus. See, we try to define ourselves by all kinds of things. Look what I've done. Look who I've made myself to be. Look at these things in my life. Look how put together I am. There is nothing more defining in our lives if you're a follower of Christ than being known as one whom Jesus loves. I love that, you know the reason why we, we ought to, I mean all of us, we ought to be so filled with joy that we can call ourselves one whom Jesus loves. Every one of us at the foot of the cross gets to gaze upon Jesus Christ and right now, listen, in this moment, do you think John understands in this moment the great love of God for him in a more unique and significant way? He's seeing his savior give himself up for him. And here, we too can say with John that our identity is found in being one whom Jesus loves if you're in Christ. Finally, we see our example at the foot of the cross. This is how we love right here. This is the example according to Philippians 2 of how we are to love and serve other people. We do what Jesus did who didn't count himself as equality with God, something to be grasped, but gave himself up, suffering the humiliation of the cross. I mean, it begs the question in our lives, are we other-centered or are we self-centered? When you stand at the foot of the cross, you see what true love looks like. You see what you are willing to do for other people if Jesus is the one you follow. There's nothing you wouldn't give to serve others. Finally, I want us to look at his completion. The last couple of verses are so significant. As Jesus has demonstrated such compassion as he hangs in agony, it says in verse 28, after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished said, and John puts in parentheses here, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. 
A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Jesus gives his final words on the cross right here. And this is absolutely amazing that as we think about the completion, what Jesus Christ is accomplishing here on the cross, Jesus, knowing the scriptures tell us everything, knowing that all was finished, knowing that he had completed what God had set out for him, knew, knew there was one thing. This is amazing. This is the sovereignty of God. There's one little thing that has not yet been fulfilled according to scripture, and it must be fulfilled, and that's a simple sip of wine as he hangs on the cross. And he says, I thirst. And just, this is what you need to know, that this is not a desperate word from a dying man. This is the sovereign control of a saving God. And he fulfills the scripture, Psalm 69, verse 21, that says, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. So the soldiers, just, just, isn't that amazing that in the sovereignty of God, hundreds of years earlier, this Psalm 69 was written, the psalmist knew by the Spirit of God that there was going to be wine sitting at the foot of the cross before crucifixion was ever even invented as a form of punishment. And just so you see the sovereign control of God, Jesus Christ, he demands for them to give him a drink. That's what's happening here, and the soldiers oblige him. they take a sponge and they soak it in this vinegar wine, and this is a different wine that was offered to Jesus. By the way, at the beginning of his crucifixion, all of the criminals are offered a, a wine that has gall in it, which is kind of, it's a narcotic. It's, a, it's to dull the pain, and Jesus refused at the beginning of the crucifixion. This is so significant. He refused to take anything that would dull the pain of the crucifixion. He wanted to bear the full weight of it. He wanted to feel every ounce but now to fulfill the scriptures. They hold up this kind of diluted vinegar, wine kind of drink that was popular among the Roman soldiers. They put it on a a branch of hyssop and offer it to Jesus. Don't overlook that detail. The hyssop branch, every time it's mentioned in scripture, is incredibly important. See, this is the plant that was used at the Passover to brush the lamb's blood on the lintels and the doorpost of the Israeli home, reminding them, remember that, of how God would save them and deliver them and pass over their sin. And in this moment, here hangs the lamb of God, sacrificed for the sins of the world. And these Roman soldiers unwittingly take a hyssop branch that was used to paint the blood of Jesus symbolically reminding us, alluding to this Passover lamb, this lamb that now is dying once for all. And with that, Jesus speaks his final words. Actually, the other gospel accounts tell us that Jesus shouted these words out with a loud cry, it is finished. he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. This is not a hopeless cry of a victim who's giving in to death. 
Okay, don't think that for a second. Don't let your mind go there that in some way he's just kind of giving in. Listen, this is the victory cry of a conquering king. This is a declaration of triumph. This is the end. This is the final blow. It is finished. It has been accomplished right here, right now. For all people, for all history who look upon Jesus Christ, it is finished because of him. And the word he uses is the Greek word tetelestai, which means that an action has been fully accomplished. It has been totally completed, and the significance of his entire life came down to this one moment in time. The mission of his life, the very reason he was brought from heaven to earth, has been fulfilled. The plan of God, the promise of God, the payment of God is delivered in final form right here on the cross. Can I get an amen? I mean, come on, not ex- this, is, this is the moment, this is the moment we stake everything on. The word also is used in, in the Greek language to mean paid in full. It was used in ancient times in connection with the payment of rent or a significant debt. The receipts were often introduced with this word, tetelestai, indicating that a debt was paid off in full. What is he talking about? What's the debt? Listen, he's talking about the debt that you and I have to sin. Romans makes it so clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Each one of us has accumulated a debt beyond measure. And the wages of sin is death. And at the cross we see, we see that. Because he loved us so much, he puts himself in the position where he will be the one to erase the debt in full. Colossians 2, 13 through 15, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It is finished. We come to God, listen, not because we're worthy. Nobody comes to God because they're worthy. We come to God bringing a list of rolls out that is incalculable of debt upon debt. I sat with my kids just a couple weeks ago before church, and we're reading through a psalm, and we're sitting there, and we start, I I looked at my kids, and we were gonna pray together, and I said, kids, is there anything that maybe you need to confess to God? And my son says, I can't remember. My, da- my daughter looks at me and goes, yeah, Dad. I said, well, well, what do you need to confess? And she said, I just have thousands of sins. And I just keep sinning and sinning and sinning. And I, just, I looked at her and said, yeah, that's, see, that's our problem, isn't it? We all, we come with this list of sins. A certificate of debt that cannot be paid by you and me. We don't come worthy. We all come unworthy. That's why it's a gift of his grace. That's why it's free. It cannot be earned. It cannot be purchased. Only he can purchase it. Only God can purchase it. And it's only purchased by the insurmountable value of the Son of God. 
And so when we come to him with our list of debts and when we look upon the cross and we see him hanging there and suffering in our place and when we believe on him, he takes our certificate of debt and he stamps upon it with the cross, paid in full, never to be remembered, never to be recalled, never to be held against you. Forgiveness, full and free in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah, what a savior. Amen. The work of redemption that the Father had given him was accomplished. Sin was atoned for and Satan was defeated and rendered powerless. Every requirement of God's righteous law has been satisfied. God's holy wrath against sin had been appeased. It is finished. Christ's completion of the work of redemption means that nothing, listen, nothing needs to be added. You don't get saved and then try and earn God's favor in your life. You look to the cross and he gives you everything. There's one problem in the world and that's sin. There's one solution and that is the cross. No wonder Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Do you know this morning that your sins are forgiven? If so, praise God. Praise God, rejoice, celebrate. And I wanna, if I can't hear you singing up at the front after the service, praising God with great passion, then you gotta come talk to me afterwards. We're gonna shake you up a little bit. It's been a good enough shake up, I hope. My heart is full. Like I'm ready to sing, who's ready to sing? All right, let's get this worship team up here. We need to sing. But listen, if you do not know that your sins are forgiven, if you have not embraced Jesus Christ as your king, don't wait one second longer. You can know right now, you can have it right now. He holds it out to you as a free gift of his grace and he says, take, take. Look to Jesus, repent of your sin and believe that he has paid your debt in full. Know the freedom and power of the cross this day.